Thank you, Greg, and it's exciting to be part of a church family that's energetic and growing and wanting to make a difference in our community. I look out in the audience and I see so many faces of those who are here who are visiting and we want to welcome you, our visitors. Some of you have traveled great distance to be here and some may be from our community. And if you're part of our community and you're looking for a church home, we would love to talk to you. And afterwards, I'll be out at the Welcome Center and I would love to get to know you and we can try to find a way to help you get connected and plugged in. We're just a group of, of sinners who have found hope in Jesus, and we want to share that hope with the community. And so we're so, so glad that you're here with us today. We're in the middle of a, or kind of getting close to the end of a series that we started in September called Meet Up. And in this series, we're talking and going about and going through two letters, two letters that were written at the same time by the Apostle Paul and sent to the same church. The letter of Colossians was sent to the whole church there at Colossae, and the letter of Philemon, which we started two weeks ago, is uh, also a letter that was written to the church, but specifically to an individual, Philemon. And as we've gone through the letter of Philemon, we've seen that, that this is a very powerful letter. It's a, it's a letter that, that really draws us into it because of the personal nature of the letter. It's a very short letter. It's what some people would call a postcard. In fact, if you look at your pew Bible, try to find it, it's on page 845. It doesn't even take up a whole page. It's just half of a page there, this short postcard of a letter. But it's also a very controversial letter. It's a letter that deals with difficult issues of discord, of slavery, of, of different uh, uh, discussion points that we need to talk about in our community and it's also a very challenging letter. This is a letter that, that stretches our faith, that, that really doesn't necessarily make us feel all that comfortable. We're, we're being moved into a direction of God's holiness and maturity that is sometimes not easy for us to do. Last week, we looked at this letter from the perspective of the Apostle Paul, the writer of the letter, a leader of the church, Someone who was well-known, someone who had authority, a mentor. Today we're going to look at this letter from the perspective of Onesimus. Onesimus is known as the runaway slave. He was someone who ran away from Philemon, the household of Philemon, where he, where he served. And somehow, we don't really know how, but somehow he came into contact with the Apostle Paul who was in chains. He was in house arrest waiting for trial. And through conversation, his heart changed and he became a believer. And once Onesimus became a believer, Onesimus had a responsibility to live out the kingdom of God, to live in a way that was not necessarily comfortable, but a way that he was called to because of God's word. He began to see himself and see others in a new perspective. And so I decided that today I would like to have some help in teaching 
this particular passage. And I kind of feel like Onesimus was younger. Now, the reason I think that is that any time you describe someone and the very first syllable is run, like a runaway slave, just the whole idea of running, that's reserved more for people that are younger than me, at least. All you have to do is look at the contribution when the kids are given it. You know that's <laughs> part of their life. And so I thought it would be nice to get someone that maybe is closer in age to Onesimus, who I picture to maybe be in his mid-twenties. Now, Zach, how old are you? Twenty-four. Okay, you qualify. <laughs> I also, and I don't know, and I'm going to be a little bit uh, vulnerable here, um, I don't know whether it's because of the flannel graph pictures that I remember in Sunday school as I was growing up. But whenever I picture Onesimus and most Bible characters, they had a beard. <laughs> you qualify. And so I've asked Zach, if he will, one of our ministers here, to, to really pull us back into the world of Onesimus. And for us to be able to, to really understand what was going on in his world and that help us personalize this message that goes through this letter uh, that he delivers back to Philemon as he goes back and, and re-enters life there in Colossae and the household of Philemon. Now what we're doing each week is we're reading this letter. It's mm -hmm. only 25 verses long. And we're changing each time, each week, we're reading it from a different version. And so today I'm going to read it from the NIV. Here is this letter written by Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all His holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to... Keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced 
but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And, and one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right, thank you, Kelly, for the reading of God's Word there. Um, I am very excited to get to dive into this today because it's kind of an intersection of two things that I really like. Um, The first is studying God's Word, and the second is Roman history and culture. Uh, When I was in college, I found that there are these things called podcasts. I didn't know about them before. But I found them. I don't know if any of you have found them. And there's this one by a guy named Mike Duncan that's called The History of Rome. And I listened to that thing nonstop. It was 180 hours. It went from the ancient period all the way to the fall of the West in 476. And so I got to really kind of nerd out enjoying this. And since then, I've kind of gotten to read books. And then I got to do seminary and study ancient culture stuff. Uh, But I'm going to get to do that this morning, and I'm just very excited. So I hope that you're excited too. Uh, it usually comes through in me talking fast, so I'm going to do my best to slow down just a touch. But I'm, I might—I'm just warning you uh, at the at the outset of this thing. <clears throat> the reason why we get to talk about Roman culture today is because. In Kelly's brief little five minutes of explaining who Onesimus was, he pretty much covered the entirety of the biblical text's words about Onesimus. We don't really know all that much about him, about his motivations, about you know what came into it. We know that he went to Paul. He probably was looking for him because the Roman Empire, as we're going to find out, is a pretty big place. So the idea of them just happening to walk across each other, Holy Spirit could do that, but probably he went and found him. Um, But again, there's just not all that much there. But as my wife and I and Tyler and Jaina, for the AFCers who know them, we got to go to Israel with Ray Vanderlyn a couple weeks ago, and it it was an incredible experience getting to learn about the Bible in its original context. And as we got to learn about the Bible in its original context, we learned that if you understand something about the history and culture in which the words were written, Sometimes you can have a deeper insight into what the words mean and some of the motivations of the characters involved. So I want you guys to go with me this morning to the Roman world. I want to try to tell you something about that culture and world and see if it can't shed some light on this text that we read, and particularly Onesimus in particular and some of his motivations. So first, let's just go to Colossae. 
This is a picture from the modern day of Colossae. Uh, the ruins are within the modern city, um, or actually just outside it. There was an earthquake, and they had to shift it over. But um, that, it is in modern-day Turkey, and, and the, if you look at the map of the Roman world in the time of Onesimus, um, it is that arrow up top there. So that's about kind of where it is in the world today. The arrow down below, just so you know, that's Jerusalem. So that's pointing out where Israel is. And so this is a map of the Roman Empire in 66 AD. So around the time when Onesimus and Philemon and this whole story was unfolding. There's a little bit cut off at the top. I couldn't find a good map that had all of it. The Roman Empire stretched all the way up to Scotland on the British Isles and all the way to Jordan. Um, modern-day Jordan. It was a massive, massive area. It was the biggest empire the world had ever known to that day, um, and it was incredibly powerful and efficient, and there were so many um, various things about Rome that were just doggone impressive. Um, and all of this is a credit to this guy right here, uh, Caesar Augustus. Uh, so Caesar Augustus was the Caesar when Jesus was born. That was towards the end of his li- of Caesar's reign. But he was the Caesar right after Julius Caesar was assassinated in 49 BC. Uh, so Julius Caesar won all these victories, destroyed the Roman Republic, and then he got killed by the senators. But he adopted this guy Caesar Augustus, who reigned for 70 years. Um, and in his, I'm sorry. He was 70 years old. He reigned for 40 years. That's, uh, that was incorrect. He reigned for a very, very long time. And because of that, because of his reign, he was just absolutely brilliant. Not only was he an able administrator, was he able to organize a system of bureaucracy that could actually manage to govern that big um, area of land, he actually knew where he was weak. He wasn't a good military leader, and very few emperors were able to actually recognize their weaknesses, and so he did. And so he had a guy named Agrippa who would go win all of his battles for him. And so that tag team was able to subdue this massive amount of land um, and hold it and control it and govern it in a way that no other place had before. Guys, they did this without cell phones. They were able to manage all of that broad area of land before the printing press. It is incredible the ingenuity that Caesar had in his, um, and, and he was a maniacal guy who was always kind of going, going, going. I bet he talked as fast as Jimbo Fisher to his aides. Um, but let's look at some of the things that the Roman Empire produced. So the first thing that it's known for, we've got this pantheon that's in Italy. It's very funny. There's actually a McDonald's right across the street from it, but that's, um, if you've been to Rome, that's there. Um, but this is a great, they had these temples that were just absolutely impressive. They had no cranes, they had no pulleys, they had just manpower, levers, and a lot of back, you know, a lot of hard work. That's how they constructed buildings like this. Amphitheaters were dotted in every single Roman city. Not even just the major ones, in some minor Roman cities there were also amphitheaters. This is where the birth of the theater happened. So all of the, you know, Disney Plus just came around just now and we can watch all these awesome movies because it started with the theater way, way back here, um, and those spotted the Roman Empire. Um, this is the actual theater in Colossae, and so Onesimus would have been familiar with this structure, although the ground around it probably would have been not as high as it was today. Um, and those amphitheaters were constructed so well that this particular one in Israel, it's in Caesarea, is still used today as a concert venue. Now, they put in a couple of guardrails and whatnot, but it's actually a pretty big deal for an Israeli singer to be able to perform at the amphitheater in Caesarea. 
So that's the, the level of quality and construction that these guys had. Other things that the Roman Empire was able to produce, uh, they began what is today our modern hospitals. There are these temples of Oscalopius. And these are the places where if you were sick, you would go here and you would get the cutting edge of medical care. And now I know that we can laugh and look back and scoff at ancient medicine, and probably rightfully so, but these definitely had an impact on our hospitals today. Because Oscalopius' symbol is actually used by the American Medical Association today. So what started there has impacted all of our culture. Okay, so other things that they did were these incredible bridges. Um, And these were bridges were aqueduct bridges. There were pipes that went through these bridges to connect the areas. Um, The Romans devised an ingenious system of aqueducts that would take water from a, a spot that was upstream and they would dig a pipe through a hill and then if they had that space, they'd build that aqueduct bridge into the city and they'd be able to funnel water into these cities from far, far away. Um... Those, uh, and not, if you look at that and you know anything about engineering, you'll know that there's a massive amount of pressure from the gravity and all the water trying to rush through. So they built release valves along these bridges. And so if you were on a road that followed an aqueduct, there would be various spots where pools of water would come up. Then you could water your horses or you could water yourself or, or get kind of those things. So this system of aqueducts allowed for these great public fountains. Um, this is the Trevi fountain that's in Rome, um, but there are fountains all over, and it also allowed for the public bathhouses to be consistently watered and attended. Um, the public bathhouse up here is the one in Bethshean, uh, which is in Israel just south of the Sea of Galilee. And so this was not a major, major Roman city, but um, that is a, the ruins of a public bathhouse. All those little stones, it's very interesting, um, those stones would be heated up, um, and on top of them would be a thin sheet of rock or a sheet of glass, and then they'd throw water over the thin sheet, and that would create steam. And so these bathhouses would be steam rooms, and there were places where people gathered, washed themselves, and hung out, the, the forerunners of our modern spa. And the last thing in Roman architecture that's, that's very well known is these various gates, Um, They had this system of arches. There's the massive arch in the middle, and there's so much pressure going on that they had to build those relief arches on the sides. These gates were a testament to Rome's power and grandeur. They served as important military checkpoints um, that they could guard, you know, control who was coming. Go to the next one. Um, That's the gate of Septimus in Italy, and then the last one is another picture. That's in Jordan in the city of Jerash. So if you're trying to raid a city and you come into that, that's the weak point. It's very fortified, and the Romans were able to hold those gates. Rome was able to do all of this, again, without our modern technology. If we lose our cell phones for like a day, we feel all antsy and can't freak out and, and forget how to operate because we don't have Google Maps to tell us where to go and we can't, you know, Google where the nearest place is. You know, these guys were able to do all of these incredible things without any of the, the modern uh, stuff that we're able to do. And it's just, it's flat out impressive. But you can, you can learn a lot about a city and, and a culture from its buildings, but you can't learn everything. Like, for instance, if I were to walk around Texas A&M's campus, I could learn quite a lot about the priorities of Texas A&M University. There is one building that stands out from the rest of them, and that building, I think, kind of shows a bit about what that university really values. Um, I, I, can anyone guess what that building is? The stadium, yes, where we go and worship every Saturday to the gods of college football. Um, but... 
that doesn't encapsulate everything about Texas A&M, right? There is this spirit that can ne'er be told. Someone should write that down. That's a good line. Um, and that spirit, you know, you, you got to learn something about the people to really understand uh, what that culture is. And so I wanted to talk for a minute about how Roman society was distributed, how, how their society operated. And we learned this from a variety of sources, but there are a lot of people within Rome that wrote about this. So this is, uh, there's, it's well attested to. And if you want to know where I get my sources, come up to me later and I'd love to, to talk to you about that. I just don't want to source cite everything because uh, that would get, you just don't want that. Anyways, um, at the very top of Roman society was the imperial class. Uh, and this was the emperor and his family. And then right after that, there was the senatorial class. And now the senatorial class, um, the way that you became a senator was your dad was a patrician, which is like the upper crust. You were born into the right family, and you owned a lot of property. Now, some historians have done estimates trying to figure out what their currency was worth and what it is in our currency. Understand it's an estimate, but they said about $5 million in property holdings. So that's, you have to own at least $5 million in property and be born into the right family. And you could be at the top of the food chain in Roman society, a senator. There's about 600, it's not about, there are 600 persons in the first century who were senators. Um, That is 0.000923% of the total population, which estimates from around 50 million to 65 million at the time of Onesimus. After that, there's the equestrian class. Now, the equestrians got their name because 200 years earlier, before Rome had conquered the world and gotten super rich, they were the rich people of the day because they were able to afford a horse whenever they went out to war, hence the name equestrian. So since then, they have uh, the, the horse thing didn't mean anything anymore, but that is the origins of the equestrian name. There were about 15,000 equestrians at the time of Onesimus. Um, they had to own a minimum of $2 million in property, and there was no hereditary requirement. So you could be a, a pleb, you could be a patrician, and you could become an equestrian. You just had to have enough money. Now, the equestrians were the capitalists of their day. They were the, the moguls of their day. Um, the senators weren't allowed to do business throughout the empire because they had like the political base and support and the right pedigree of family that they could be a threat to the emperor. So the emperor refused to allow the senators to do business and get super wealthy. That would challenge his authority. So the equestrians, who were kind of a, a lower rank, they were the ones who did all the business, and they got filthy, sneaking rich. Rome was very particular about identifying these classes at all times, as we'll come to see. But one particular thing that's of note is, is that, that to- the Roman toga with the sashes the sashes indicated what class you were. If you were an emperor, you could wear the purple. No one else could wear the purple. There were other, um, other sashes that indicated the other things, but these, these were the two upper crusts, the one percenters, well, really, it's the 0.58 percenters of their day. After this, we're still in the upper crust, but we get to the freeborn Roman citizens. This was a heretic. You could, you could either be born a Roman citizen or you could buy your Roman citizenship. There's no standardized number for how much it cost because basically, kind of like the tax system, you just kind of milked them for all it was worth. And so what, the, the rate, it was very, very expensive, as the centurion tell, told Paul whenever he, they were arguing in Acts about the situation, when Paul wanted to go talk to those people. Um, there were about 5 million persons in the first century, so about 10 to 15 percent, depending on population estimates. Um, they were granted special legal protections, 
which Paul uses in the book of Acts in order to, to appeal to Rome. They were uh, protected from beatings. The Roman soldiers couldn't tell them to walk a mile or two miles. And they, they had, uh, again, special exemptions. And the apostle Paul fell into this class of people. Now we reach the masses, the non-Roman freeborn peoples. There's about 15 to 20 million freeborn, uh, non-Roman freeborn peoples in the first century around the time of Onesimus, 30 to 40 percent of the population. They had a few legal protections, but not many. Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about going an extra mile or turning the other cheek, that was how to respond to the Roman oppression that happened because they didn't have, they couldn't say, hey, a Roman made me do this. That was the Romans' right. You weren't a citizen. You didn't have that protection. They were vulnerable to both exploitation and theft by the government. Um, and then the next class, and this is Onesimus's class, is the class of slaves. There were 15 to 25 million slaves in the time of Onesimus. This was an economic slavery as opposed to a racial slavery. So people of every um, ethnicity, and there were se- if you saw the Roman Empire, there's a lot of different ethnicities. They were all ab- able to be taken as slaves, but the, the humiliation and degradation was just as brutal in, in many, many cases. Uh, they had almost no legal protection, virtually none. There were some writings about trying to do some slave reform to keep masters from killing their slaves, which tells you that that happened, um, but really it never, it never happened or took root. They could purchase their own freedom. If they managed to scrape up enough money in spare time and things like that outside of their deal, they could manage to purchase their freedom, and their children were generally free. Um, I want to take you into that world because I, I have to say, like I, as I said before, I listened to this podcast. I love the glory and grandeur of Rome. I'm so impressed by what they managed to do and what they managed to build. But we're not looking at history rightly. We're not understanding the Roman Empire well if we don't see it through the lens of this social stratification. Because the thing is, is that all of those amazing buildings also had a teaching function. They taught people where their place was in society. If you go to the amphitheaters, the equestrians and the senators would sit up front. The freeborn Romans would sit behind them. The non-Romans could maybe stand in the back and the slaves... Yeah, they couldn't come unless they were doing something for their master. If we look at those aqueducts, I talked about those pools. And those pools, if they they were being guarded by anyone, they wouldn't let a slave drink out of one of those pools. They wouldn't let a slave drink out of the fountains. They were for the Romans and they were for the equestrians. Everything about this is teaching them who they are. And this particular place in, uh, in Israel that uh, we got to go to, there's a slave door that was built on the side for the slaves to enter because the freeborn Romans and equestrian, they don't want to see the slaves and the help. They get to go in on the, on the side door where they can take care of the fire and make sure the steam keeps coming, but they don't get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. If we look at the temple of Asclepius, if you can guess... How many slaves do you think received good medical treatment in the temple of Asclepius? The answer is not very many. Maybe, maybe if an if a equestrian had a slave who he really liked, he would get him help. But if you didn't have money, if you weren't important, you weren't important to Asclepius. And the last thing is probably one of the most stark. It's, it's the gates. Uh, Roman gates, they had this particular function in society. When we see this, we see this awesome big structure what, what Onesimus would have seen is his status in society. If you were an equestrian or a senator, you could walk through the center arch. If you had that sash, you could walk through the center arch. 
If you were a freeborn Roman or maybe a wealthy non-Roman, you could walk through the side relief arches. If you were a slave, you went to the door on the side, unless you were carrying your master's things. Every single thing about the glory of Rome was built to show Onesimus his place. The sights that he saw, the air that he breathed, the water fountains and theaters, they were reminders to him that Rome considers him totally expendable. Can you possibly imagine why Onesimus might have been drawn to Paul? If you remember, Paul was a freeborn Roman. Not only was he a freeborn Roman, Paul was a genius. Paul wrote 70 pages that are the most read pages ever. He has changed the world. He was just prolific in his intelligence. He had the whole Old Testament memorized. He was intelligent, and he had an industrious spirit. He was able to work and travel and motivate this big movement. Paul had it all, and he was a Roman citizen, so he had legal protection, and he had all of the accesses so that he could have built a successful life in Rome. But he sat in chains, not for murder or theft, but because he preached a gospel that said, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Can you imagine how divisive that message was to Onesimus' world? Paul sat in chains for a reason. He was a threat to the entire Roman way of life. Equestrians needed their slaves to build all of the things that they enjoyed. And they can't be close to one another. They can't be brothers, as Paul suggests. Because can you really justify that kind of oppression whenever you're near someone? It's really easy when you're far away and you can be like, well, they're just lazy and, you know, they're, they're not well formed and they can't do this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, we're the educated people and they need us. Like, that's the arguments that were made. And you can do that if you're sitting off and you've never talked to one. But whenever you're brothers, if you're in an intimate family relationship, you can't justify it anymore. It was a threat to the way of life. What Onesimus found in Paul was a man who had everything. Yet he was not a slave to the status and success like all the others around him. He sat in chains, but Paul was the one who was truly free. And how did Paul use his freedom? Every single breath he took, he poured himself out to try and show the world what God was like. That's what Paul did with his freedom. Everyone he talked to, everyone he was around, he lived out the teachings of Jesus. And Paul was not the only one. The early Christians followed in Paul's footsteps. This is the thing. If you can imagine that society, it was ripe for Christianity. 80% of the people are getting to see all of this glory and not get to experience it and are told that they're not valuable. And then someone comes along and says that you're all one in Christ and God loves everyone. That's a message that really resonates with the Roman world. And, And it absolutely did because it took over. There's a Jewish scholar that says this, people in the first century were drawn to the early Christians only to find that they encountered Jesus himself. Jesus lived among the community because when the community of God lives as we are intended, we show the world what he's like. And that is our mission. And because of Paul's example, Onesimus was saved and redeemed. If this were a contemporary Christian movie, I might suggest that this is where the credits would start rolling. 
and the new Newsboys song would be played. The person was converted. They were saved. The Christian lived counterculturally. The person who wasn't a Christian saw it. They found Jesus through that person. Yippee, the story's over. But that's not the book of Philemon. You see, actually, conversion is the beginning of the story for Onesimus. Conversion and salvation are critically important. But what happens after we believe? What do we do with the remaining however many days the Lord gives us? The answer is the same then as it is now. We become disciples. Onesimus became a disciple and gave the rest of his life to following Jesus, trying to imitate Jesus every single day and every action that he took. And so Onesimus returned to Philemon to be reconciled to him, submitting to slavery or even death, because by Roman law, Philemon could have put Onesimus to death. He trusted God and submitted to these things. And that's a hard teaching because slavery is unjust. It is dehumanizing and evil. And frankly, we all would have liked for the scriptures to univocally condemn the system. But that's not what we find. And I think, actually I know, the Bible did this because it doesn't ever present God's ideal society. The Bible presents and teaches us how to navigate the fallen world in which we live. When Jesus told his disciples that they were to turn the other cheek when slapped or walk another mile, he was not validating the Roman oppression or the action of the oppressor. He was showing his disciples how they were to bring the kingdom. And when Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night and Peter struck off the servant's ear, Jesus healed him. Whenever Jesus was beaten, he turned the other cheek. He didn't call curses upon them. He remained silent. And when Jesus was crucified and nailed to that tree, he loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, just like he taught to his disciples. Jesus practiced what he preached, and Paul followed his example. When Paul acted throughout the book of Acts, you can see that he loved his jailers and his accusers. The tale of the Philippian jailer, the guy who had put him in the stocks and then God freed him and Paul made sure that all of the people stayed. He loved the man who was persecuting him. He followed Jesus' example. Paul trusted that God was sovereign over his life, so he submitted to whatever was to come. And so when Paul told Onesimus that he ought to return to Philemon and submit to whatever God had in store, Onesimus followed. He did it. And I think he did it gladly. I think Onesimus was excited to go back. And the reason that I think this is because I know what it's like to be around a passionate and gifted teacher. But more importantly, one who's authentically living out that which he teaches. Being around someone like that, even for a short while, changes you and inspires you. And guys, I've had that privilege working with Kelly Davidson. I've heard him teach about marriage, but I've seen him interrupt conversations to talk to his wife to make sure she knows that she's his his priority above work or whatever else is going on. As I've heard Kelly talk about modeling Jesus to the world so that they know who God is, but I've seen him, whenever we're at a restaurant together, one, pay for my food every time. I I can't get my credit card out quick enough. But then two, whenever the waitress comes, he'll ask about the waitress's children by name because he pays attention to the people. I see him live that. I'm around that, and it changes me. 
When God wanted to be absolutely clear about who he was and what he was like, he became a baby and grew up into a man. And that man took disciples and taught them how to live out God's law. He taught them what it meant and he taught them how to live it. Paul and Onesimus followed this model. Paul learned to model Jesus in Arabia for three years before he started his ministry. And after And that's not even to mention the lifetime of study that he had done before that under the legendary teacher Gamaliel. And Jesus, on, sorry. And so when Paul did this, I think Paul followed and learned Jesus well. The reason that I think this is because when I look at what Jesus did, the idea of being a disciple is to do what your rabbi does. So let's look at what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus on the cross took the debt of guilty persons in order to reconcile them back into the family of God. That is exactly what Paul does here in the letter to Philemon. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Paul asked nothing more of Onesimus than to follow the example that he set, to follow him as he followed Christ. This discipleship relationship was the backbone of the church that transformed the Roman world. Through discipleship, the early Christians navigated the complexities and ambiguities of Roman society living as faithful outcasts, forming communities that stood like cities on a hill to a broken world obsessed with materialism and social status. Does this sound familiar? Here in the 21st century, we are faced with incredibly incredibly complex moral questions. Lots of ambiguity exists in our world. We live in a world that's obsessed with materialism and social status, but I fear that we have forgotten the model that allows us to be cities on a hill, that model of discipleship. There's an old Jewish saying that happened around the time of Christ just after by a rabbi named Akiba. He said this, no one should live without a rabbi and no one should die without a disciple. There are amazing lessons that you learn when you submit to those who are older than you, particularly when you don't want to or you don't see why. Learning to listen to Kelly has been such a blessing in my life. Sometimes I disagree with him. We'll have good arguments from time to time, but learning to submit and trust, hey man, this guy is bearing fruit and I'm going to listen to him even if I don't get why, that has taught me lessons that are invaluable for my life and character development. But then modeling those lessons for people who are behind me, for people a bit younger than I that I have relationships with, is essential in the training and righteousness that is discipleship. Because the thing is, is that if I sin and I have disciples who are looking up to me, I'm not only hurting myself and my family and sinning against God, guys, I'm threatening them because they're looking to me to model Christ. It's something that I I think about a lot and I have to learn to pray. It's that model that was passed on from the early church and I think it's a model that we as a church should definitely be living into. And so I'm asking each and every one of you, old and young, do you have a mentor? Someone who's modeling Jesus whom you respect, who's speaking into your life on a regular basis. 
Guys, our world is complex. Figuring out how Christians should respond to this or how you should face your boss or how you should navigate this life situation is a difficult, difficult thing. And we need each other's help. Empty nesters, ones whose, whose children just left. Do you know anyone who's walked through that faithfully and well? You're experiencing life without your kid, a quiet house. Things are different. Your relationship with your children are changing. Do you have someone to process that with? Maybe you're welcoming a new son or daughter-in-law into your deal. One of the things, and I'll just, I'll just spoil it here, that is in the premarital um, counts thing that Sean and Kelly put on is that they kind of wish they could do one of these classes for the adults who are dealing with the situation because so many of the lessons are this is how you navigate relationships with in-laws. Do you have anyone who's walked before that faithfully that you can talk to and process the new changes and different expectations and frustrations? To, to keep Christ at the center whenever you're doing those things? Recent retirees, have you asked those who have come before you what it's like? How to, how to manage the loss of a vocational identity? How to use the new time that you have to, to the glory of God and the service of his church? Seniors in college, do you know anyone who's transitioned into the working world? who's made that transition faithfully, who's set up healthy boundaries of work and life and learned how to put God at the center in their new walk of life. No one should live without a rabbi. And to all of you, every single person in here, if someone in this room or outside of it asked for you to meet with them for an hour each week or maybe an hour every other week, are you prepared to say yes? I know you have a busy schedule. But isn't this worth going into the office early so you can take a long lunch with someone? Isn't this worth an extra loss of an hour of sleep or maybe missing a college football game or, or not buying Disney Plus and just sticking with Netflix? Isn't this worth more than just the time? Guys, no one should die without a disciple. And so if you need help, with that. If you want that, but you don't know what it looks like, the first thing that I would say to you is look for someone who's bearing fruit. Look for someone who you say, that person loves Jesus and I see it in their life. And go ask them. Worst thing that happens is they tell you no and you've just given them a great compliment. That's such a good thing. There's, there's no risk to that situation. All you're doing is encouraging them. But go ask them and say, hey, I want to learn from you. Will you meet with me? I highly doubt that they would say no to you. Unless there's something. Um, but then, <laughs> if the, the second thing is, is that if, I would love for you to start with our shepherds. If I, if I could ask my shepherds who are in the room, if y'all could stand real quick. I didn't warn you beforehand, I apologize. But if all the shepherds in the room could stand, the elders, yeah. So guys, these are our shepherds. I'm sure that they would love to talk to you about how to get into a mentorship or a discipleship relationship. And if they couldn't do it, I'm sure they know someone in the church who they could help plug you in with. That is something that we want to do as a church. Um, and absolutely, come talk to me. I, I know a few people. I can try to point you in the right direction. That's something that I think that we should do. Um, all, of, all of our ministry staff and, and elders uh, would love that. And, and so I would like for us to close out by reading together Jesus' great commission in Matthew chapter 28. So if all of you would stand with me together, and after this, John's going to come up and, and close us in song. But these were the last words that Jesus said to his disciples recorded by Matthew. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's sing, guys.